Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 15th February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. We'd also like to give a warm welcome to the organisation Full Fact, which, of course, has set itself up as an independent organisation to check on facts and truthful reporting, and we believe that they are with us today. So welcome to Full Fact. Uh, we're just going to get started here with uh, green finance and, uh, well, creative destruction. In fact, first of all, government has announced £10 million to uh, invest in what they're describing as world-class green finance research hubs. Uh, these are going to be based in London, of course, and also in Leeds. Uh, and uh, they're going to set up a new UK centre for greening finance and investment. Uh, and that's going to begin in April. Uh, these hubs are going to be opening uh, very shortly afterwards. And I wonder who could be leading that. Well, it's the University of Oxford, the University of Leeds and Imperial College London, of course. Oh, that's, we've heard of them in connection with uh, COVID. vaccine yes. and COVID, I think. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so apparently banks, uh, lenders, insurance are, insurers sorry, are going to be encouraged to invest in clean innovations green technologies from renewable far, uh, power to sustainable agriculture. Um, and uh, well, here's uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan uh, and what was she saying? Uh, climate change is the biggest issue we need to tackle to protect our planet for children and grandchildren. OK, that's that's all fantastic stuff. But Mario Draghi was being, uh, who of course is uh, uh, in charge of Italy at the moment, he's, he's leading. Uh, he uh, has been commented on in the Financial Times uh, at the end of last week. Uh, this is a letter to the Financial Times. Draghi's plan needs less Keynes and more Schumpeter. Schumpeter uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and, uh, well, they're talking about uh, various things. Uh, the fact that uh, Draghi has been talking about uh, creative destruction with respect to the financial markets and particularly the new green deal green new deal sorry and of course this comes out of a, a, a document that he wrote for the g30 now the g30 is the supposedly the 30 uh, largest economies in the world uh, and the document was published in december it's called reviving and restructuring the corporate sector post-covid designing public policy interventions uh, and let's just have a brief look at what this says uh, under the section attitudes toward towards firm failure and employment. So this is the failure of companies uh, and whether people should be employed or not. Uh, the document is very clear. It says policymakers will vary uh, their weighting of preserving the status quo and existing jobs versus allowing or encouraging the process of creative destruction in which firms fail, uh, allowing jobs and resources to flow from unsuccessful firms to ones that are better suited for the new economy. Uh, but of course, we've heard this kind of rhetoric before uh, and from uh, Mark Carney, of course, who is uh, the former governor of the Bank of England, uh, currently uh, Boris Johnson's advisor on these kinds of issues. Uh, and he was saying back at the end of 2019, uh, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. Uh, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. Uh, there will be industries, sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they'll par be part of the solution. Uh, but there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished. Uh, and David, if we could put a, a label on this uh, just for the sake of it, uh, we might like to call it the Great Reset. So this seems to be what's going on here. It's being led by 
a, a number of key people, Mario Draghi being one, uh, Mark Carney being another, uh, Klaus Schwab being another. But uh, I'm just interested to, to get your thoughts on, uh, on creative destruction in the economy. Creative destruction based on global warming. And the time is lovely because we had 15 weather stations across the UK recorded the lowest temperatures ever last week, ever. So global warming is clearly a big worry on the minds of Draghi et al. Uh, the Great Reset, uh, the reset under Scots law is what you call having someone else's things that have been stolen and you're caught holding them, you know, trying to fence them or something. That's reset. I think that's appropriate. In fact, I suspect that's where they got the idea from. The whole, the whole driver here is we are looking to have uh, companies which are successful, not in terms of delivering what the consumers want, but in terms of delivering what the political masters want. That's, of course, the economics of fascism, as we've mentioned before. And David, I'd just like to add into that, of course, the creative destruction phrase I first came across when the uh, Tory MP Nick uh, Boyle warns the general public. Nick Bowles. Bowles, I yeah. beg your pardon. Nick Bowles warns the general public that this was part of conservative policy and that they regarded creative destruction of public services as being a good thing. Um, it was also echo echoed by a um, candidate, parliamentary candidate called Danny Kruger. He also reported The Guardian, I think, if, if I remember correctly, carried most of this report. But truly extraordinary that we had people um, really warning, whistleblowing from within the Conservative Party that the Conservatives plan to unleash this uh, so-called creative destruction. Um, the feeling I get from this document that uh, Mike's just brought up is that this, of course, is not conservative policy at all. This has come from, from in the uh, bowels of the world's deep state. I don't know whether you'd like to respond to that. The original quote, or the original idea was from an Austrian economist called Schumpeter, who was Joseph Schumpeter, and he was, he was from Austria. And he was kind of semi-Austrian in terms of his outlook. Um, he was talking about the private sector, where there's constant innovation and constant change to meet the ever-changing ever-changing needs of the public, and the ever-changing techno technological uh, options available. Um, this is politically driven. This is something else entire entirely, and it's again it's one of a long list of ideas that have been borrowed from the private sector. Um, into the state, and the words have been used, but in the hands of the state, which remember is coercion, there's, no, there's nothing voluntary about it, you're forced to make these decisions. In the hands of the state, it becomes something very much more sinister. A very interesting word to bring in there, sinister, and I think this is appropriate. Let's jump across to the uh, BBC's website from earlier today. Um, well, of course, we had uh, the vaccine as the, uh, the big hit article there. Take note of the gentleman with his sleeve rolled up to get a vaccine, because later in the news we'll be showing that our local MPs do this rather differently. Uh, but what caught my eye was this one, solving uh, COVID is easy compared with the climate, says Bill Gates. Solving global warming would be the most amazing thing humanity has done, said the billionaire. 
And um, I'll just bring in this uh, screenshot uh, because what we're about to show in a video clip from the BBC, truly astonishing. This is what Bill Gates said, net zero will be the most amazing thing humanity has ever done. But pay attention to this video and pay attention to the, the BBC's um, questioner uh, in the bottom left of your screen. Well, the pandemic uh, will come to an end because these amazing vaccines were invented in a year and now uh, we're trying to scale them up and adopt them. To Okay, apologies for that. We had a problem with sound for some reason on that uh, video clip. But of course, if you go to the BBC's own website, you can see it. But uh, Bill Gates there uh, just gushing in uh, the fact that vaccines, um, getting rid of COVID, that was no problem at all. We needed to move on to climate change. And of course, there were lots of embedded clips of uh, all sorts of troubles in the world from um, fires to young children in impoverished African states not able to feed themselves, but not to worry because Bill Gates uh, is going to solve all of those problems. Now, what you won't have been able to see, and I'll have to describe, we'll bring this image up on screen. This is a, a shot of early on in the video. And uh, David, I'm going to come to you in particular on this because I looked at this image and I thought, my goodness, this is very, very carefully crafted by the BBC, where effectively we appear to be inside some form of church almost. I think it's the uh, National Science Museum up in London, possibly. Um, but it's the scale of it, the, the drama in the lighting. And um, I think what we've got here is that the BBC has been created the temple of Bill Gates. And I don't think this image is accidental. I think it has been very, very ca uh, carefully filmed. Uh, we've got man here. We can barely see man down in the left hand corner, insignificant man. And then, of course, we've got, uh, well, really the saviour, the self-proclaimed saviour of the world. Uh, Bill Gates here on screen and uh, we've got um, a dinosaur head uh, coming down it's almost as though that head is going to eat the man and I'm saying is this a depiction of death so something extremely interesting going on here with the BBC and I cannot believe that they've gone to this scale of drama um, without wanting to actually push this man, Bill Gates, as the, the absolute world saviour. Um, it's ironic that we have many people in UK at the moment describing the vaccine as the mark of the beast. Just very quickly, David, what's your take on this? Well, I, I thought this was um, the, the scene from Big Brother, where there's a huge crowd comes in to, to hear from Big Brother. They go through the two-minute hate and then they're they're, they're talked to by Big Brother. But obviously, you can't have a big crowd because it's social distancing. So this is Big Brother with social distancing. There was something very Orwellian about it, um, threatening. And yeah, yes, you're quite right. The insignificant man versus the great image on the screen. Um, this uh, does not bode well. It doesn't bode well. So um, is there a better individual to bring up on screen than uh, this gentleman here? So... Uh... Let's have a look. Uh, well, who is it? Well, it's Tony Blair. UK should lead the way with COVID passports, uh, reported 18 hours ago by The Independent. So Blair back on the scene, uh, 
presumably they're thinking about the world in his claws. Uh, but just found it quite interesting, and thank you very much to one of our viewers that, by coincidence today, pointed out the sums of money that have gone from uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, through to the Tony Blair Institute. So we're into the millions and hundreds of thousands of dollars on this page here. People can freeze these images to see it. Uh, it's for all manner of things, global development being the key one, health development, public awareness and analysis. We can't be aware without Tony Blair. And we need those uh, millions coming in from uh, Bill and Melinda Gates in order to keep Mr. Blair going. So I think it's pretty clear what we're seeing here, which is Bill Gates as the puppet master and Tony Blair as the paid puppet. Uh, but uh, as with respect to uh, passports and COVID passports, Dominic Raab, of course, speaking to LBC, uh, he said a vaccine passport is something that hasn't been ruled out uh, and it's under consideration. But of course, you've got to make it workable. Uh, you've got to know that doc the, the document that's being presented is an accurate reflection of the status of the individual. Um, and uh, many people uh, noticing that that was an answer to the question, uh, would it be possible uh, to roll out vaccine passports and allow those uh, that have them to have a much freer life, including maybe even going to supermarkets? Um, so we seem to be heading in a particular direction at the moment. Uh, but David, the Cyprus Mail here uh, saying that British Airways is going to be using a vaccine passport uh, and it's one called Verifly. Verifly, yes, and they quote the chief executive Sean Doyle, although flying is currently restricted, it is essential we do as much as we can now to help those who are eligible to fly and prepare to help our customers navigate the complexities around the changing global entry requirements when the world reopens. <laughs> yes, uh, we remain focused and committed to finding user-friendly, evidence-based solutions to make journeys as seamless as they can be. So there we go. That's what you're going to face: is uh, vaccine passports to make things as seamless as they can be. Clearly, uh, the world reopening does not mean it's getting back to normal. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we have a petition up on the government petitions website. The petition is called Do Not Roll Out COVID-19 Vaccine Passports. It says we want the government to commit to not rolling out any e-vaccination status slash immunity passport to the British, British public. Such passports could be used to restrict the rights of people who have refused a COVID-19 vaccine, which would be unacceptable. 126,387 signatures on that so far, which normally means perhaps maybe the uh, parliament will hold a debate on this issue. Uh, but of course, we know, David, in fact, I'm just going to say it's, it's quite ironic. The BBC this morning was uh, was talking about Trump and the, uh, once again, and the fact that, uh, you know, the the uh, impeachment trial had failed and so on. Uh, but they were, it was the way they were describing him. They had their experts on describing him as being anti-democratic. Uh, and attempting an anti-democratic coup and pushing forward with anti-democratic narratives. And it sort of amused me uh, in this context because, of course, 100,000 uh, signatures is what is supposed to trigger a parliamentary debate. Uh, but we have no parliamentary debates, I'm exaggerating slightly, going on at the moment uh, because under the emergency legislation of the Coronavirus Act, everything's just being done with statutory instrument uh, and very, very little serious uh, commentary or opposition or discussion or evaluation or accountant accountability from parliament uh, of the government 
And uh, I just thought it was a bit ironic uh, that, 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 you know, all this criticism of Trump on one hand and a complete uh, missing of the point of the state of democracy in Britain at the moment. And indeed in America, because it's taken a big lurch in the, in the wrong direction with the Biden administration. It seems, though, that the, the phrase democratic and anti-democratic no longer mean what we think they mean. Like so many words, they're, they're referring to something else entirely. Perhaps we'll have a go at defining that in extra time. Yes, OK. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, I think it takes us to this very important segment. Let's uh, just jump to the 8th of uh, February when the UK column uh, interviewed a, an NHS whistleblower, um, extremely uh, experienced person um, and uh, and uh, in the information that they were putting across they were talking about uh, uh, what was happening uh, inside care homes and deaths and illness following the vaccination of uh, elderly people. Uh, prior to that we'd also had another um, uh, NHS whistleblower, a uh, very experienced person warning that there had been a problem that after vaccines had gone into the um, oldest age group in care homes, there had been a massive increase in the death rate and they said it had gone up 81% in that age group. So we were reporting the warnings from people inside the NHS and the care system. However, our report has been picked up by the organisation Full Fact. Now I'm going to say a big thank you very much big thank you to our viewer that spotted this. Um, Mike, you've got some analysis on what Full Fact had to say. Well, this was their article, COVID vaccine hasn't caused increase in care home deaths. So that's what they claim. COVID vaccine hasn't caused increase in care home deaths. And underneath there's a box which says on the left, uh, deaths in care homes are up 81% uh, since the start of the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. So that's the claim that they're disputing. And on the right, uh, their verdict is deaths are in care homes are up considerably, although we haven't been able to replicate the 81% calculation. Uh, these are not deaths due to the vaccine. That's a statement. These are not deaths due to the vaccine. These are largely due, due to COVID-19 itself. Okay, so they, they link to a post on Facebook, which looks like this. It said, shame on you, British press. Deaths in care homes have risen by 81% since they received the vax and no one except UK Column is covering it or investigating it. Shame on you. Okay, that's what they are, are commenting on. So let's have a look at what they say. So they ask, what has happened in care homes? Uh, and they say the vaccine rollout started on the 8th of December with care home residents and staff being prioritised. Oh, really? This is a very disingenuous statement because although the vaccine rollout began on the 8th of December, it didn't begin on the 8th of December in care homes. Care homes, residents and staff uh, were claimed to be prioritised by the government, but they in fact weren't. Uh, so here is a Telegraph headline as an example. Uh, first care home residents in England to get COVID-19 vaccines in, er uh, in early Christmas present. And the date on this was the 23rd of December. Now this is quite important because everything that full fact claims in the rest of this article is based on a start date of the 8th of December. So what else do they say then? Uh, in the week to 8th December, uh, 2,171 deaths in care homes in England were notified to the Care Quality Commission. This rose as high as 3,746 in the week to the 23rd of January, a 71% increase. So they couldn't validate the 81% number 
uh, they claim a 71% number. Uh, and the reason they couldn't validate the 81% number, of course, is because they chose the wrong start date. And if we look at the, the graphs, which you've shown on this program over the last few weeks, um, we saw that there was a flattening out and even a reduction in deaths during that period uh, until the effects of the vaccines started to kick in, or at least that seems to be the case. But anyway, let's see what else they said here. After the vaccine rollout, the number of deaths registered then fell in the last two weeks of the year. And remember, their date is the, the vaccine rollout beginning on the 8th, not the 23rd, as actually was the case for care homes. Uh, so they write in saying that the number of deaths registered then fell in the last two weeks of the year. And that, but in brackets, they say perhaps reflecting delays in registrations during the Christmas period rather than actual fallen deaths occurring. That's correct, mostly before shooting up in the first week of 2021. Uh, they then go, to, go on to say, but the exact figure is sort of beside the point. Deaths among care home residents did not increase because of the vaccination program, but because COVID itself spread widely in December and killed far more people. Really, is that what was going on? Because that's a very strange statement to make in light of the government's own statistics showing the number of COVID cases. Because if we take from the 23rd of December, when the vaccine rollout began in care homes, uh, with the exception of a few days, we've seen a massive fall in the number of cases uh, as defined by the government uh, since that time. But we have, a, 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 over that same period of time, a massive rise in the number of deaths. So if the cases are falling and the deaths are rising, then how can full fact be claiming that this rising death rate is as a result of COVID spreading through the population because there are no cases. This is very interesting. Uh, what else did they have to say? They said the MHRA notes that you would expect to see deaths anyway after a vaccination, given the most vulnerable are being vaccinated as a priority, but that on investigation, it did not appear vaccination played a role in any of the deaths reported as, suspicion, as suspicious. Really, <laughs> what on what... What actual evidence is there for making that statement other than they're quoting the MHRA who have a vested interest in denying that any of the deaths in care homes were as a result of the COVID vaccine? Uh, and our whistleblower, highly qualified NHS whistleblower, was, was particularly warning that the vaccine was suppressing immune systems, which meant that it was, it was in fact deadly for elderly people, uh, extremely vulnerable, many of them infirm, so they're given the vaccine, the immune system is depressed and therefore they are at risk of death, whether, whether that was directly from the vaccine, which was not what we were saying, or it was putting them at risk of infection from COVID amongst other things. But of course, full fact never did any proper investigation. No, uh, they go on to say another indication that the vaccine isn't responsible for the increased number of care home deaths is that deaths also rose in other groups which were much less likely to be vaccinated at the time. Uh, but we already showed that the vaccination program began three weeks before <clears throat> the care home vaccination program began. So of course, vaccines were being spread uh, within the community outside of the care home settings. And we would expect to see deaths rising in other groups as a result, if it is the vaccine that's causing the deaths. But if we actually look at the graph that they put up, uh, here it is. Uh, and you can see some correlation there, but actually if you put the line on the graph for when the uh, vaccine, for, for uh, where the, the correlation ends, 
you find that in care home settings, the number of deaths continue to rise over the following weeks, whereas in non-care home settings, the deaths flattened out and began to fall in the following weeks. So there isn't quite the correlation that full fact claims. Um, so I'm a sorry full fact, but we are going to look at your article again and put the fake news label on it because you haven't done your work and you haven't done the research properly and you haven't actually been objective about how you've looked at the information. And, and there's something which I find, I'm gonna use the word offensive. Um, if the true figure is 71%, which full fact is trying to say, we are talking about deaths of elderly people here. We should have full fact saying there needs to be a full and proper investigation into why these elderly people, but no, no, it's just get out the spin to uh, support the government's vaccine uh, program through these very uh, vulnerable people. So I, I find that extremely unpleasant, the way the deaths are just nothing. They're just statistics. Yeah, because it doesn't really matter whether it's 71% it or 81%. It, it doesn't it, matter. The Whereas the UK column took the trouble to say what an, uh, a qualified NHS whistleblower was saying, and we've now got more whistleblowers coming forward. But let's have a look at uh, what Full Fact says about their own impartiality. So a big page telling us how impartial they are. And uh, what should we look for? Well, because um, their impartiality has been carefully constructed based on advice from our board and examples ranging from Amnesty International to the BBC. And the moment I see the BBC on there, this is not credible. You're laughing, Mike, off camera. But the reason we're laughing is I don't think anybody in the UK believes that the BBC is an independent and unbiased organisation. So I'm not surprised Full Fact is, uh, is promoting them. But of course, this is where we really start to see what we're dealing with, because this is funders of Full Fact. And what do we find at the top? Facebook. £563,775 in one tranche and 232400 in another tranche for working for Facebook. So remarkable the story they got was on Facebook, Mike, because they would have been paid for it. Yeah, presumably they only get paid if they find articles to criticise, whether the, what the criticism is correct or right. not. And if we go on down the list, we see the Nuffield Foundation and Esme Fairburn. These are all uh, think tanks which are largely creating uh, public, uh, uh, sorry, uh, political policy or, um, or promoting it of their own right. Uh, but the money goes on all the way down and you can have a look at that. And then I was fascinated by this. Since January 2019, Full Fact has checked images, videos and articles on Facebook as part of the social network's third party fact checking initiative. This work is funded by Facebook. Uh, the total fees Full Fact has earned from Facebook for work on the third-party fact-checking program during 2019 is 294,400, presumably US dollars. The amount of money that Full Fact is entitled to depends on the amount of fact-checking done under the program. David, you uh, work um, professionally. Um, people being paid, which. To me, it's a gravy train. You find stuff, you report it, you get given more money. Um, how can you possibly be unbiased? Yeah, and the question is, can, can full fact point to cases where they have actually been backing up on you know, uh, 
viewpoints which are controversial, viewpoints that would be frowned upon by the political control um, that, that, that uh, has the centre of Facebook and Twitter and organisations like this, are they, are they actually pushing back against their paymasters? I suspect not very often. Not often, no. Well, we did call Full Fact this morning just to see what they had to say about the article and the fact that, of course, Full Fact didn't mention the UK column, didn't mention any of the data that the UK column had pushed out, didn't mention the whistleblower. All of that fact was ignored in order to get the appropriate spin on the article. Uh, we even pointed out that uh, journals such as the British Medical Journal here was now starting to really ask serious questions. Uh, BMJ lashes out at state corruption and suppression of science in UK, but remarkably the, um, uh, the full fact um, media person uh, hadn't read that article, didn't know about it, asked me if I could send them a link, but I suggested I thought they had enough capability to search the internet for it themselves. So just remarkable that uh, where has truth gone, where has factual reporting gone, certainly not from full fact in our opinion. Um, but uh, just to show that this, I mean, we've shown these types of articles from around the world already, but here's another one from DW, Coronavirus Digest, German nursing home sees outbreak after vaccines. This is happening in other countries, not, not just in the UK, and also not just in the UK, whistleblowers seem to be coming out. So there's 2020 news, whistleblower from Berlin nursing home, the terrible dying after vaccination. I think that's a, a translation uh, inaccuracy, but nonetheless, uh, this is uh, something which is not just happening in the UK. It seems to be happening everywhere that the Pfizer vaccine goes. Yeah. Um, so where does that take us? Uh, David, COVID-19, uh, how did a volunteer panel react when we showed them an anti-vax video? If we're talking about BBC uh, objectivity, then perhaps this is a perfect article to discuss it. You ask where the truth goes. Well, it goes to the BBC and that's where it dies. This is a, a, an astounding little article uh, by uh, Mariana Spring, specialist disinformation reporter for the BBC News, so we won't get her on uh, advertising standards. Uh, now, just glory at the prejudicial and biased language here. Activists, activists, right, have been targeting people. So we're not, they're not persuading people, they're not communicating with people. No, they're targeting people with fears about vaccines in a social media blitz. Who's, who's been targeting the people with fear in a social media blitz? It's the government, right? Well, not according to the BBC. In an experiment, an experiment, okay, BBC Panorama, because, you know, we're scientists, BBC Panorama showed a panel one video filled with falsehoods to see how it affected their willingness to get a jab. So, so the, 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 the good boys at the BBC, they're, they're, they're having a very high-minded experiment here. Uh, so let's see what they say. Uh, the video is just one part of an online anti-vaccine blitz. Exclusive research by BBC Monitoring, which dates its history back to the World War II, incidentally, has found a huge increase in followers of social media accounts promoting anti-vaccine material during the pandemic. Uh, these aren't accounts asking legitimate medical questions, but people and organisations who, who have already made up their minds against vaccinations and are manufacturing evidence or, and twisting, or twisting facts to support the conclusions. So the BBC is saying you can ask questions, but you can't make up your mind. 
you can't have a view that's contrary to the government view. So that's interesting. Uh, they quote Sean, a, sh a chef who watched the video, and he said, the video says what I've had in the back of my mind. He says, running his hand through his hair as he tries to make sense of what he's just watched. Doesn't sound like he's trying to make sense. Sounds like it made sense to him. So we go on then, Dr. Smith, main fear, this is the this scientist that's, over, that's, that's supervising this, this experiment. His main fear is that the video would amplify people's pre-existing fear. This materialized. He goes on, he wants any doctor or professional promoting false claims to fame to face disciplinary action. Quote, I would certainly be very pro them being investigated and any evidence of harm being looked at, he says, and then being stopped from using their title. So what he's saying there is if you're in the medical profession and you want to blow the whistle, he thinks you should lose your job, your career, and your livelihood. That's the, um, that's the, the, the open nature of the BBC investigation. And it gets worse. Uh, Panorama contacted all 33 people in the video. 11 responded. Four defended the video's contents. Five said if we referred to them as anti-vaccine, they'd take legal action, and one made no comment. Another acknowledged the virus is real and causes disease and death, but said the measures to manage the pandemic are disproportionate. So it sounds like there was a, a broad spectrum on this video of people who are opposed to the, the, the COVID policy. Panorama invited Oracle Films, which produced the video, to comment. That's very nice. The filmmakers chose not to do so. Oh. What did Panorama do? After Panorama contacted PayPal about the request for donations, its account was taken down. So, having failed to actually get any scientific evidence at all in this that suggests that the claims being made in this film are, are manifestly incorrect, they simply threaten anyone in the medical profession who might want to speak out and pull the funding source from any filmmaker who wants to get that message across. Uh, this is the BBC for you, um, stamping out free speech wherever they find it. And can I just add into that, uh, David, of course, both our whistleblowers uh, that we featured on UK Column, uh, one from within NHS medicine side, one from the care home side, uh, are saying absolutely that uh, the reason they can't speak out and show themselves is that they would lose their job because of the threats coming to them through the system. So now we've got the BBC helping pump up the idea that you mustn't tell the truth, uh, you're going to lose your job, and the BBC is going to help you lose your job if you dare to speak out. I, I, I don't know what uh, what terminology to use on this. It's outrageous. Uh, it gets better though, Brian. Because, yeah. uh, let's bring uh, Josh Cheatham on screen. Uh, he's from the BBC, and he tweeted this out on the third of February. Keen to speak with people who've come across conspiracy theories through online wellness, e.g., yoga influencers and forums. Where did you see it, and how has it affected you? Send me a DM or email joshua.cheatham at bbc.co.uk. Um, and so that was on the 3rd of February. And yesterday, this article appears. Um, does yoga have a conspiracy theory problem? Uh, and so uh, what's he saying? He's saying throughout her career as a yoga teacher, uh, Sean Korn uh, has been used to uh, 
to hearing students, oh yes, to hearing students and colleagues rail against mainstream medicine. Uh, she even shares some of their concerns, but when the coronavirus pandemic began in 2020, she noticed a change. I started to get text messages and emails inviting me to speak on panels and listens to leaders talking about anti-vaccination. But within that, there was rhetoric about COVID being a hoax. Uh, then they would start to send me information about Big Pharma, and then, and the, which then led to information related to Bill Gates, then to sex trafficking. Uh, I also saw a different language being used amongst my peers. The Great Awakening, the storm, uh, where we go one, we go all and so on and uh, and so it goes on and then but she recognized these phrases from other communities as well colon QAnon uh, he goes on to say this uh, he says since the start of the pandemic a number of western yoga and wellness influencers used their social media platforms to share QAnon conspiracies and discourage the use of face masks and vaccines uh, several influencers have also advocated for Save Our Children, a movement closely entwined with QAnon, which alleges global elites are involved in child sex trafficking. Uh, a study by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate found that, anti, uh, found that influencers with anti-vax views, including those within the yoga community, have gained nearly 8 million followers since 2019. And so it went on. That It was really a ridiculous article uh, pulling together a total of no evidence uh, to demonstrate any kind of uh, trend within the, the, the yoga community uh, that would suggest that they were linked to QAnon in any way. But it seems to me that this uh, is a pretty targeted attack, David, on anybody that's, uh, that's looking at sort of alternative mechanisms for maintaining their health and well-being uh, and their mental health uh, in particular. Yes, part of the BBC attack on thought, but that that was that was pretty awful. I mean, that was really there was a scraping sound there as you were reading that out, and it was the bottom of the barrel. That was dreadful. And and I think we we should also point out that of course that many older people do very light forms of yoga exercise. So I wonder whether this is another attack on elderly people, but it's certainly attack on a a vast community of people across the world um, trying to improve their health, mental health and fitness by using yoga. So this is a very despicable attack by the BBC on, on those people supporting yoga. And I, I hope that our viewers and listeners will promote this and also ask the questions of the BBC. Um, well, unlike full fact, we don't have uh, Facebook, other social media platforms and, and various foundations funding us. We rely on you, our viewers and listeners. So thank you very, very much for everybody that has done so, so far. And if anybody would like to join us, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, also, if you'd like to share our material on the usual from the usual platforms, then please do so. Uh, but I'd also just like to say a very special thank you uh, to Claire H., um, who did something very spectacular this morning, Brian. And uh, so thank you very much, Claire. It is very much appreciated. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, this is really also an advert, although we're going to an article from The Guardian, Fury, that do not resuscitate notices given to COVID patients with learning disabilities because the UK column reports on care homes and the vulnerability of people in care homes which include, of course, people with learning disabilities. Our reports have hit home and we're absolutely delighted 
by the people who are now coming forward with information about what is happening inside care homes. Now, if you read this headline, you could be lured into thinking that this is concern that patients with learning disabilities were being given do not resuscitate notices. And so effectively, the, the state, the British state, was encouraging the medical professions, the so-called caring professions, to kill off people with learning disabilities. Um, I don't apologize for putting it in those words. So the headline and the article, what's it really about? Well, it's not about concern for people with learning disabilities, uh, because what this article is about is promoting vaccines for some of the most vulnerable people in society. And yet we've got this statistical correlation between vaccines rollout, COVID illness and death as being reported by um, the whistleblowers. So just taking a couple of lines out of the article, this is a Dr. Kerry Michelle Lodge. She says doctors often don't understand that someone with learning uh, disabilities may not be able to communicate their symptoms. And the reason I pulled that out is because our care home uh, whistleblower particularly warns that uh, carers were simply being told what to do by the government. They were not able to use their local knowledge uh, and judgment and understanding of their individual patients in order to understand what they were communicating. So interesting that this psychiatric consultant, Dr. Lodge, uh, recognises this, this problem with communication. Uh, but she goes on, carers are sometimes not listened to. You might notice something is wrong, but that is often written off as part of their behaviour. The biggest factor associated with the increased rate of death from ONS analysis was living in care homes or residential settings. They prioritised people in care homes for vaccinations, but that was only for older adults. They completely forgot about people with learning disabilities in a really similar setting. I don't know if the government were blindsided or just neglectful. So the interesting thing about this is this is all about getting more vaccinations in. It isn't, uh, so that's, sorry, there's an extra U there. It should be just immensely vulnerable people. Uh, this is about promoting vaccines, the whole article. It is not about investigating why we've got this massive spike in deaths amongst elderly people and vulnerable people uh, like those with learning disabilities. And the theme in the article was continued by Professor Martin Green, Chief Executive of Care England. He said, as the largest representative body for independent providers for adult social care, Care England remains concerned that the government has not given individuals with a learning disability a higher level of priority for the COVID vaccine. So this is about getting the vaccines in uh, the whole thing is not about protecting people, understanding what's making the mill. It's get those vaccines in, get the payments made for the people administering the vaccines and get the profits up for Big Pharma. Uh, now, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, when I think back to the middle of last year or so when the talk of vaccines began, uh, there was statements from various vaccine manufacturers, I think including Pfizer, Pfizer saying that they would not be making a profit uh, out of this particular pandemic and the vaccines that they roll out on this. Uh, well, that may have been very disappointing for their shareholders, but it turns out it's simply not true uh, because here are their quarterly reports uh, and the most recent quarterly report has been published for the fourth quarter of 2020. 
Uh, and uh, so it says, given the significant impact that uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine is expected to have on the company's overall results in 2021, Pfizer is providing additional details on the revenue and margin assumptions incorporated within the above guidance ranges. These assumptions are summarized below. So they're expecting, David, revenues uh, for the vaccine of approximately $15 billion uh, with a, a, a margin before tax in the high 20 uh, 20s as a percentage of revenues. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good deal. Yes, it is indeed. 20% is uh, healthy. Uh, yes, healthy, uh, but we don't need to just restrict it to vaccines. Let's let's uh, get it out amongst other uh, medicines as well. So this is Agile, the clinical trial platform that's been set up by uh, the British government, and they are pushing forward now with rapid drug development for COVID-19, which is not vaccine related. Um, so they've said that they are now funding uh, Agile clinical trial platform they're funding four main types of drugs, four treatments uh, selected for Agile for, for phase one clinical trials. Uh, they have been funding phase two and phase three trials in the past, but now they're uh, funding phase one clinical trials as well uh, for uh, an antiviral, uh, for uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, medicines, and also for uh, what is called an, I'm going to mess this up, but an anthel an anthelmin, I'm sorry, an anthelminthic or something like that. Uh, this is an antiparasitic drug. Uh, it's very similar to uh, ivermectin, which has been uh, uh, getting a lot of attention in various uh, media sources over the last uh, period of time, or it's that type of drug anyway. Uh, so there's four main kinds of drugs that they are funding uh, rapid uh, research for to get these out as quickly as possible. They will be uh, avoiding the usual uh, requirements for clinical trials in exactly the same way that the vaccines have done yeah. uh, to get them out a lot quicker. Um, and uh, no doubt uh, they'll make similar profits, David, on those. Yes, or more, because presumably the most of the development costs are now covered for the vaccine. And uh, they're looking at having the vaccine rolling out year on year, like the flu vaccine. So will it not be Fair to say this will be a huge money spinner for the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I, I think it will. But what's been going on in uh, Israel? Well, Israel is, is uh, streets ahead or months ahead of the rest of us in the vaccine rollout. So it's very interesting to see what's going on so we can see what might happen here. Uh, the Times of Israel reporting here, as demand for vaccines plummets, Israel may have to resort to incentive programs. Uh, Israel's world-leading vaccination drive is slowing because of a collapse in demand. The health ministry and some private firms are looking for ways to incentivize Israelis to go and get their shots. Um, so uh, diving into this a little bit more, um, the, the Times uh, reports that Israel has been aiming to dole out 200,000 shots a day. But although everyone 16 and over is now eligible, demand is running at barely half that. Uh, although Israelis um, uh, are, uh, el are 16 and older and are eligible to get vaccinated, uh, the inoculation centres say few are showing up. Quote, we have no explanation for why people are not coming. We send out messages telling people to come and get vaccinated, but still the response is low. Interesting. Um, now, Moshe to Safari 
um, waiting at a vaccination centre in Jerusalem for a vaccine, told Channel 12, it's just shocking, the flood of conspiracy theories online against vaccinating, it's shocking. And people are dying as a consequence, so they see the government conspiracy theory. Uh, if, you, if you don't do what you're told, you're literally killing people. Uh, so the, the report goes on, Israel is still the leading, uh, leading the world in vaccination rates per capita, having given the first shot to over 3.5 million of its citizens, which is around about half, and a second to 2.1 million. According to OECD figures cited by Channel 12, Israel is also leading the world in infections. Although Just a coincidence. Yeah, but it has the lowest mortality. There's also been worrying signs of medical workers declining to be vaccinated. The vaccines have been available for medical staff since late December, and those who are not vaccinated, which is a very large proportion, have declined the shots of their own accord. So that's one thing. So the vaccination programme is being pushed and pushed by the government, and it's now reached a point where the population are saying, you know what, I think I'll pass. So we're into, we're into incentivizations and bullying now, so we'll see which way that will go. Now, th this next article is just astonishing. Um, and it, it shows the nature of the division in society that, that is being promulgated on the back of this. Now, Israeli society is a very fractured one. And one of the fractures is between the, the religious and the non-religious and between the ultra-Orthodox and the rest. And the ultra-Orthodox is something like 20% of the Israeli population now, about a million people. So a very substantial uh, number of people. So this is Haaretz's um, report. And, well, I'll, just, I'll read it and just, just let me know what you think. Opinion. De-radicalize Israel's COVID insurgents before they incite a civil war. Israel faces a new terrorist insurgency. This time it's ultra-Orthodox Jews armed with COVID, and the government is unwilling or unable to, to safeguard our lives or the law. And the next bit's just astonishing. She writes, Let's imagine in a Middle East land far away a man straps a bomb, rigged vest to his chest. He wanders into a seminary where young men are gathered learning from holy books, or enters a house of worship where row upon row of men are praying devoutly. He might stop by a market, board a bus, or even mingle in the crowd of a wedding or a funeral. He closes his eyes and cries, God is great, the explosives detonate. This is what is happening every day across cities in Israel, except that the man, wearing a vest with, the man is wearing a vest with ritual fringes, so that's referring to Orthodox Jews, a black suit and a hat, and the incendiary device is a cloud of invisible droplets laden with COVID-19. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Where do we go from here? She asks. The answers are unclear, but transnational Jewish, but a transnational Jewish problem clearly requires a transnational Jewish solution. Maybe we can take a page from other guides that are ready de-radicalization, what Israel is, what in Israel is often being called integration and broader practices for combating extremism. For a state battling for its citizens' welfare and for a Jewish people that seeks to protect its integrity, the first step forward may be to acknowledge that a faith that declares both truth and the preservation of life as the highest values can no longer sanction such conduct in the service of the divine. So this is one step away for asking for a final solution to the Jewish heredity problem. It is the most vicious attack on a community I think I've ever read in the mainstream press. Absolutely astonishing. 
and, and, the, and you've highlighted the divisions in Israel there. So this this shows us the uh, the state of the Israeli government. It's the government that's enforcing this, and those orthodox, orthodox Jews are are being described in this way, mm. and this is being reported. It's it's incredible. This is heading towards a tinder keg, is it, or a powder keg? Yes, it's 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 head, heading towards violence. And the issue is that the ultra-Orthodox community do not buy the government line on COVID. And look how they're being portrayed as literal terrorists and murderers, as I said. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's look at this. The G7, of course, is happening this year in uh, Cornwall, and uh, that take place in, takes place in June. Uh, but this Friday, uh, Boris Johnson is going to host the G7 leaders for a virtual meeting uh, he's going to use this to call for international cooperation on vaccine distribution and to build back better from the coronavirus. This is all good stuff. Uh, he's going to call for a new global approach to pandemics uh, that uh, learns lessons from the division that characterized the initial international response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and he will argue that putting our citizens first should not come at the expense of working on a unified response and that the last 12 months of the pandemic have showed that no country can be safe until every country is safe from the pandemic. The rollout of vaccines offers a fresh opportunity to demonstrate the value of international cooperation is going to be his message. So let's have a look and see what some of the things he's going to say. Quantum leaks in science have given us the vaccines we need to end the pandemic for good. Uh, and that he hopes 2021 will be remembered as the year humanity worked together like never before to defeat a common foe. So uh, assuming that you're not uh, absolutely wetting yourself over that, David, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was 2020. Was that, I thought we were already had united to defeat a common foe. Are we just doing 2020 again? I, I, I think perhaps we are. I think that's absolutely right. Well, I think we've got to add to that. I believe I read something before we've, we've come live on the news that uh, Boris, you know, thinks it's going to be very difficult to disengage from lockdown. So uh, I don't think there's anything on the horizon soon. But uh, there's... No, and, and in fact, uh, the indications, because Australia, Victoria uh, and also uh, New Zealand have both instituted lockdowns in the middle of their summers. Uh, for, you know, their localised lockdowns, okay, but nonetheless, they've got lockdowns going on in the middle of their summers. Uh, I would imagine we are going to see exactly the same thing here. Yeah. Um, David, uh, European Defence Union is something that we've been talking about over the last number of years. Uh, but as things have progressed, particularly throughout 2020, in the last half of 2020, uh, the idea of European Defence Union seems to be being replaced by just Defence Union. Um, so the, the express headline here is Brexit Britain could unite uh, with Canada and Australia to create third biggest military. Yes, I mean, this is an interesting piece. And it's, it, this is coming from a, a, a foundation uh, and society pushing this idea forward, but they're getting a lot of support in, in the political realm. So I think it's something that's, that's got support, uh, we say, in the deeper parts of the state. Um, but very interesting. Uh, so they're talking about uh, a, a, a military union of uh, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, and also free trade between those countries and free movement between those countries. Um, so that's, that's very much uh, a, a sort of reunification of, of the empire in some ways. 
Uh, well, well uh, I, sorry, I'm David. Sure. Let, me, let, let me just interject there a second and ask you this, because because uh, uh, something that I felt was going to be an outcome of Brexit was was uh, that Britain was going to position itself in a way to try to uh, re-establish the the global trade deals like TTIP and uh, TPP, and we've certainly managed to do that with TPP because we've reinvigorated TPP. We've signed up to it, even though we don't particularly have a presence in the Pacific Rim. Um, and uh, T But TTIP is something that uh, Britain is very, very keen to kind of engineer through the trade deal with the United States, the trade deal with the EU. And now we've got uh, a whole new uh, institution to be a part of. This, this, this looks like it's much bigger than just defence union. You, well, yes, it is. Um, and I'd have to say I have mixed views on this because in one regard, actually reuniting with the nations that we are actually one with, uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, is, is, a, is a very good thing and something we should never have abandoned to join the EU in the first place. On the other hand, all of our countries are very badly led at the moment, so we have to be quite careful what they're doing with this and watch it carefully. But you mentioned the Pacific Rim there. Uh, more on that just now. So Mr Skinner, who's the, the gentleman pushing this forward, uh, was clear that unlike the EU, Kanzuk would be cautious about expanding further and would only do so after public referendums. Good thing too. He commented, say hypothetically, 20 or 30 years in the future, Singapore comes into perfect alignment with Kanzuk and countries whereby the economic indices are exactly the same in terms of what the statute books and in terms of what's in the statute books they align uh, with the Kanzuk countries as well. There is that consideration for Kanzuk to learn that the... Um, so, He's talking about maybe adding Singapore in a decade or, or, or two in the future. And I thought that was very uh, uh, timely. This is the 79th anniversary. Today is the 79th anniversary of the fall of Singapore. So uh, we're maybe going back. Well, I did notice in your opening a uh, bit of the article from the Express there, it said... Uh, that this was going, oh, sorry, this will give Britain's, oh, it was excluding those with a serious criminal conviction, the right to live and work in the other three uh, countries. I, I misread that and as those with serious uh, criminal convictions. Oh. Of course, that would make sense of the whole plan, I think. No, no, as I say, I'm actually quite for this plan. I don't want to be too negative about this because... We are one people with the Canadians, the Australians and the New Zealanders and, and we, we should be viewing ourselves as who we actually are. But all these countries are woefully led at the moment, so there, there is a need for caution. Um, now, and also the fact that this, this single gentleman seems to be pushing this forward with surprising success suggests to me that there's something else behind it pushing this in the same direction. He is uh, organising, and it's, this is open for anyone who wants to see, because he's Welsh himself, Mr Skinner. Um, he's with the Centre for Welsh Studies. He's, off, he's got a, a conversation uh, about Wales and Kanzuk uh, on the 3rd of March at 7pm. So people can sign up for that. And uh, the gentleman's, uh, if you go to the Kanzuk website, you can read uh, all about James Skinner, uh, who's uh, the founder and chief executive of this uh, organisation, Kanzuk International. Um, and he is looking to push forward this union between um, these, these four countries, all of whom came originally from the British Isles. And uh, as I say, let's, let's watch and see how this develops. 
Okay, and where does that take us uh, for Scotland? Well, first of all, an update uh, on Ms. Scott. Well, this is a, 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 just a little heads up. Uh, Nene Scott's been interviewed uh, by the Scottish People's Forum, which is a very well-subscribed um, uh, group on uh, Facebook, very active. Uh, so if anyone's out there and they're in Scotland and they want to know how to, how to meet people who are willing to think radical things and think and discuss things like freedom, uh, the Scottish People's Forum is a place you should, you should look to join. Uh, they've, they've recently opened a, uh, a YouTube channel and they have an interview with, about an hour long interview with Nini Scott, uh, uh, Nini Scott, sorry, on, on that uh, channel. So I encourage people to go and search for that. Um, and now that takes us to um, Scottish political affairs. Um, and it's been a very funny week on, um, on Scottish political Twitter. Here's a quick image that gives you an idea of where people are. Um, where their heads are at, and Nicola Sturgeon and the text is, it's my party and I'll lie if I want to. Uh, so much more is coming out uh, about uh, corruption in Scottish public life. Uh, and it's not without its com comic side because, well, Nicola's going to publish a book, and, and I'm not making this up. The book's going to be called, quote, Women Hold Up Half the Sky. And it's going to be published, a, a published assembly of her speech. That sounds very good indeed. Uh, and uh, as a pure coincidence, the independent Scottish publisher uh, who's going to publish this, Sandstone Press, has benefited to the tune of £410,000 in grants since 2006 from Creative Scotland, a Scottish government funding body. So, um, yes. Uh, so that's, that's Nicola's book. We look forward to that enormously. Um, on, on weightier mat matters, Alex Salmond uh, savages the law chief. Uh, quote, what is becoming shockingly clear is the extent to which the lines between the SNP government and the, and the judiciary have become blurred in Scotland. Uh, and that should be a huge concern to everyone, says a source close to the ex-Scottish minister. Yes, it is indeed. And to go into this a little more, uh, in a little more depth, the Daily Record reports that Salmon is set to accuse the Lord Advocate of abusing his position, resulting in bombshell evidence being suppressed. He will allege that evidence which was damaging to Nicola Sturgeon was blocked, um, and uh, he's going to say uh, that, it, uh, that the collapsing, discredited Crown Office uh, uh, threatened him with prosecution over memos, uh, and the SNP text wants to share with the MSPs. He will allege that Scotland's embattled Lord Advocate, James Wolfe, Wrong, wrongly applied legislation which led to Parliament being blocked from evidence damaging to Nicola Sturgeon and her inner core. I've been hearing that for some weeks from people very close to the, the committee um, in, in investigating this Parliament. The Daily Record continues, Salmond is expected to allude to the case uh, as further evidence of judicial array. He believes a group of figures around Sturgeon colluded to bring him down as part of the vendetta. Evidence he wanted to provide is understood to include messages suggesting senior SNP figures were working behind the scenes to encourage the women to make complaints, plus government memos. But Sunday Mail can reveal a letter sent to Salmon's lawyer warned that he and the MSPs receiving the information would be at risk of prosecution should it be divulged. That sounds like the Crown Office, in order to cover up criminal wrongdoing within the Scottish government, 
threatened the MSPs investigating the criminal wrongdoing with arrest and prosecution should they be so rash as to tell the truth. It's very, very worrying indeed. And uh, the next slide shows, again from Scottish Political Twitter, how the SNP are being viewed by many in Scotland, and that's the SNP logo in the word corrupt. Um, and that's where we're at with the SNP. Well, uh, I think you've said it all really, uh, David, big, big trouble north of the border, but at least the corruption is now coming to the surface and being spoken about. Whereas, of course, in, in Westminster, we've still got this veneer of respectability with exactly the same style of corruption going on under the surface. And it apparently takes the British Medical Journal to use that expression. Um, and uh, well, just very briefly, David, if we could, because we're over time, uh, Kevin McLeod death, bizarre delay in cold case investigation as cassette player needed for old tapes. Really? <laughs> yes, 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 really. Yes, absolutely. So this is Kevin McLeod, this is a, a young man who was, who, who was 24 years old 24 years ago. Um, his family have been fighting for justice for 24 years. They have never given up. Um, and uh, they managed to get a reinvestigation using police from Liverpool because none of Police Scotland could be trusted. Um, uh, but this, this has now been delayed because the, the original testimony to the fatal accident inquiry was on cassette, and apparently the police cannot find a cassette replayer, a cassette recorder to play the tapes so they can transcribe them. Um, family said, uh, we continue to question why the fiscal's instruction to the police to investigate Kevin's death as a murder uh, and the failure by the police to act on this instruction was not presented as evidence to the sheriff at the FAI, uh, at which the sheriff returned an open verdict. We firmly believe that if this crucial and key evidence had been revealed at the time and not hidden from the sheriff, we doubt very much we would, that we would still be searching for answers 24 years later. The botched investigation into Kevin's death is an epic scandal, which even today threatens to undermine public trust and, and confidence regarding Scottish police, in, in particular case detectives, when investigating violent crime, including the most serious, that of murder. Um, and it continues, also crucial evidence, Kevin's clothing, that should have been seized and forensically examined, was immediately destroyed, with no police officer apparently knowing where, when and by whom uh, the, the clothing was destroyed. We can quote, if there's no form of uh, justice or accountability after Merseyside's investigation, this would be a further scandal. Kevin was aged 24 when he died, ironically 24 years on. We are still fighting to get the truth regarding the circumstances of his horrific death. And just a very quick reminder that this is not the only horrific death where we're still fighting for the truth, that in, in, in this uh, corner of, of Caithness, we have Stephen Sutherland. Uh, we still have unanswered questions. They, all, all the questions still remain unanswered. This is a, an article from 2017 in the UK column, and this is not the only one either. There's a great deal of trouble in Caithness, and it's all surrounding the Okay, serious stuff, David. Thank you for that. Um, well, let's go to something serious, but really for the ladies. Um, here it is. And uh, we showed that picture of somebody being vaccinated that was on the BBC, but that's not how our local MPs do it, because this is local MP uh, to the UK column, Johnny Mercer. Um, so the Independent saying, would it have killed you to wear a T-shirt? Johnny Mercer MP mocked after post <laughs> posting topless vaccination photo. 
Now, I, I would like some explanation as to what's going on here, because I think this man pushed out some years ago some pictures of himself where he was in the shower. Um, is it necessary to take your top off for a vaccination? Maybe he was having some uh, more intrusive medical examination, possibly. But then why would you want to push it out as if, if that was you having the vaccination with your shirt off? So I think we're going to give that one a score of one out of 400. Um, and then let's go to um, uh, Gary Streeter MP. And uh, somebody kindly sent me this tweet that he pushed out back on February the 5th, I think it was. <coughs> Excuse me. First daffodil, Shenu. Spring is coming. Hope is coming. Just a few more weeks and freedom is on the way. Let's blow that up so we can really get the full effect. First daffodil, Shenu. Now, I know this little expression, Shenu, because it's, it's a little bit naff, and that will tell people how long ago Shenu was used by people who thought that they were in a rather better social class. Uh, they had more money. They were a little bit above those nasty people. So we, we get an insight here into Gary Streeter, but all he's offering us is daffodils and hope that maybe freedom is on its way. Is he doing any more? Well, actually, he is. And thank you to another <laughs> viewer that sent us this. Gary Streeter meeting Dr. Mercer from Beacon Group today to see firsthand the rollout of the vaccine in Plimpton and Ivybridge. Beacon Med Group have put in place a very impressive system, light at the end of the tunnel. There's hope, there's daffodils, Mike, there's light that we may get out of freedom. Well, we had a little look at the Beacon Medical Group and we were rather surprised because this is what they say, uh, that they're making general practice better practice, disrupting the norm to improve, offer and enthuse the next generation of primary care. Now, I'm puzzled as to how you would be disrupting anything and making it better. Is that the same as creative destruction? Same kind of mentality, it certainly seems, yes. Well, I'd be interested if somebody could explain this to us. But for me, if you disrupt something, you are causing trouble. But presumably this medical group isn't doing that. But I am sympathetic for them because we discovered on this page that they say that the average pay for GPs working in Beacon Medical Group in the last financial year was £40,496 before tax and national insurance. And that surprised me, Mike, because most of the GPs I know are earning a nice little wage. Uh, if this is true, then I think this is pretty shocking and, and maybe we need to see what we can do to help that. So if there are any GPs out there who can tell us whether this figure is realistic, we, we would love to know. But there we are. Yes. Uh, now Get those shirts off. Yes. Uh, we're right out of time, David, but uh, you've got a, a little bit of video you want us all to see. Uh, do you want to just introduce it? Yes, it's a beautiful thing from uh, Scottish political Twitter, which is itself a beautiful thing. Uh, we've said a lot about how corrupt uh, Nicola Sturgeon's government is. Uh, and, and how they're abusing power and uh, how they're using the Crown Office and the courts and the police for political vendettas. It was only fair, I think, that we give Nicola Sturgeon the last word. Just after Valentine's Day, someone in, on Scottish political Twitter was wondering how it had all gone for her and how she was feeling about uh, her political career and her life at the moment. And uh, this was the answer. No.
Well, excellent. You I truly hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, we did. You've brought a smile to our faces. Well, thank you to everybody who's joined us today. Um, it's great uh, to know that our viewers are steadily increasing. Please help us by sharing the information. We're pushing out the, the data and the facts and the analysis for you to share with other people. And the more you can help spread this, the better. Uh, we'll be back in 10 minutes or so with uh, extra for anybody on the UK Column website. Uh, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.